The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. This past week, I came across a very interesting article. It was written about four months ago by a woman named Grace Blue Rock. And the title of the article is 14 Things I Learned from Working with the Dying. She writes this. She says, it wasn't until I started working as a hospice social worker that I came to realize how important it really is to live in a meaningful way. Working with the dying patients has shown me the importance of living fully while you still can. For six years, I had the incredible gift of being present with people in their final days and weeks. I observed moments of deep contemplation and reflection. I saw people shed tears when they realized that they hadn't seized opportunities to live in a more fulfilling way. Everyone had a different life story, but each one contained similar regrets. They wished they had loved more deeply. They wished they'd taken risks. They realized they could have had happier, more meaningful lives had they not been so scared to go after what they really wanted. She goes on to share a story. She says, one difficult experience came with a gentleman who'd spent his entire life working 80 hours a week so he and his wife could relax once they retired. Unfortunately, he became terminally ill one month prior to reaching retirement age and spent the end of his life filled with remorse. And then she goes on with this exhortation. She says, you can settle for the mediocre or you can create an existence of passion, meaning, and fulfillment. The choice is yours. Please don't wait until it's too late. An article like this presents us with a very serious question. If the Lord were to take you today or tomorrow or sometime this year, would you be able to go without any regrets of how you have spent your time or how you have not spent your time? Would you regret what you have done or what you have not done with your life? This past uh, men's retreat, the speaker read through the Gospel of Luke, and one of the passages that really stuck out to me was Luke chapter 12, when Jesus tells a parable, and Jesus says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the thing you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. This passage struck me for several reasons. One is that this man was living the American dream, living a life of building up his own wealth, his own resources for his own comfort and his own pleasure. I have a good friend who's too busy to engage with God, to do anything with God or to come to church or anything because he's constantly working so that he can reach his targeted retirement age. But I even see this in my own heart. So often I am on my mission and not God's mission. I am seeking 
to build my kingdom, my kingdom of comfort and safety and ease instead of living for Christ's kingdom, Christ's glorious mission of extending his redemption throughout the entire world. And the irony of it all, as this article points out, is that if you live simply for your own pleasure, you will die absolutely miserable. We were made for a great mission. We long for a great mission. I think it's evidenced by one of the best-selling books of all time, The Purpose Driven Life. People buy it because they know they are meant for something more than just eking out an existence, living for their own pleasure. They are called for a great purpose and a great mission. Today, God is calling us to engage in mission, to endure in mission, of restoring all the broken things of this world and reclaiming them for the glory of Christ. If you would please open up to 1 Samuel chapter 13. It is page 234 in the Red Bible. It is page 365 in the Children's Bible. I need to do a little bit of work setting up this passage for you today. If you remember, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people cry out for a king. And then in chapter 9, that you can turn there if you want, it's page 231 in the Red Bible. In, in chapter 9, verse 15 through 16, we read this. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, who's Israel's prophet, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man named Saul from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And then here is his mission, the mission of the king. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. This king's mission is crystal clear. He is to save, to deliver the people of God from the Philistines. You go on to 1 Samuel chapter 9 later in, and you see that Samuel anoints Saul, pulls him aside, and after anointing him, excuse me, while anointing him, again recommissions him for this mission. In chapter 10, verse 1, we read this, and Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, Saul's head, and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord. And then here's his mission again. And you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies, supremely the Philistines. Saul's mission as king is crystal clear. He is to lead the people into battle. He is to deliver them from their enemies most pointedly, the Philistines. This is, this is Saul's mission. And the question we have is, what is your mission? What is your purpose? What is God calling you to? All of us have the general missions that are laid out in Scripture to make disciples of all nations, to care for the poor and the needy, for husbands to love wives as Christ loved the church, for wives to respect their husbands out of reverence for Christ, for children to honor their parents, to love the broken and the hurting. This is, this is a calling on all of us, on all of God's people. But there is also a specific, unique calling that God has put on your life. Oftentimes, it's confirmed through the ways that God has gifted you. It's confirmed through the passions that God has put on your heart. It's reaffirmed by brothers and sisters in Christ who can honestly and intelligently pray and speak into your life. 
It's even shown to us through available opportunities. You know, for me, my mission that God has called me to is to, is to flood Wisconsin with gospel-centered, expository preaching churches that focus on spiritual intimacy. For others of you, it has been to help start the Awana ministry. For others, to start up a grief-share ministry. For others, it is to minister to high school students or to senior citizens. For others, it's to lead the charge in missions. Yet for others, it's to open up their home to children who have been abandoned or neglected. God has called us into mission. And so today, as we read of King Saul's resistance to his mission, my hope is twofold. First, if you're here today and you are living a life simply for yourself, this is a calling for you to come off of the sidelines, to come into God's mission, to extend Christ's kingdom, both for God's glory and for your joy. But secondly, if you are here today and you are pursuing the mission that God has put on your life, there is a good chance that you come here today weary and tired and maybe even discouraged and wanting to give up. And so my hope is that this passage today would encourage you to endure, to stay the course to the mission that God has called you to. So that in the end, by God's grace, we stand before him and hear those glorious words, well done, good and faithful servant. There are three things here today that, that we'll see on how we are called to fulfill our mission. We are called to fulfill our mission courageously, fulfill our mission submissively, and fulfill our mission heartily. So first, let's look and see that we are called to fulfill our mission, to live our mission courageously. Again, remember, Saul's mission is to defeat the Philistines. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. 1 Samuel 13, 1. Saul lived for one year, and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, let me pause there. Your translation might say something different. There's a little bit of difficulty in translating the Hebrew in this passage. And so the ESV translates it this way. I know the NIV translates it completely different. The point that we need to take away from this is that what is about to happen happens two years after Saul is anointed king, okay? Verse two, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan, Jonathan's Saul's son, and, Gib and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. So we have a map up here for you today. You know I'm kind of a map person. I like maps. And so I, I need to, we were talking about I need a, a good laser pointer for this, but I don't have one. And so we see Jonathan is right here with Gibeah with 1,000 of the troops. Right here, Saul is at Michmash with 2,000 of the troops. And Jonathan is going to make the longer journey to Geba to overthrow the, the, the camp of the Philistines. And so Jonathan goes and he defeats the Philistines. Verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrisons of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. 
Saul, who had delayed his mission for two years, was forced into this battle against the Philistines by God through his son, Jonathan. Saul puts out a call to all of Israel. And I don't know if you noticed this, but when it is reported throughout all of Israel that the Philistine camp had been defeated, Saul takes credit for it. It is said that Saul defeated the Philistines, not that Jonathan defeated the Philistines. I think why Saul put out this call was because he knew that he was the one, he was the one with the mission to go and defeat the Philistines. He knew that the king was the one that was supposed to be leading the people of God into battle, but it was his son. And so he sends out message saying that Saul has defeated the Philistines. And then he calls the people together at Gilgal to come up against the Philistines. Verse 5, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. By attacking the Philistine outpost at Geba, Jonathan woke a sleeping giant. Again, due to some translation difficulties, your translation might said they have 3,000 chariots. Regardless, the point is clear that Israel is greatly outmatched, that the Philistines have far more military presence and they have far better arsenal of tools to use. Israel did not have chariots. Israel did not have horses. Matter of fact, later in verse 22, we find out that Israel didn't even have weapons. They had two weapons, and one was for Saul, and one was for Jonathan. And the rest of the Israeli military had no weapons. I think we can understand why Saul may have delayed his mission to go and fight the Philistines. They had no weapons. Verse 6. Let's see how Israel responds. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble... For the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Could you imagine being there with Saul? seeing the Philistine troops coming over the horizon and they just keep coming and coming and coming. As they keep coming and coming and coming, your troops start leaving and leaving and leaving. And they start hiding in cisterns, even in graves. And some of them run across the other side of the Jordan just to get away. They were paralyzed with fear because God had called them to a mission that was far bigger than their capabilities. God had called them to a mission that was beyond their abilities, their resources, their weaponry. God had called them to a mission so ridiculous that they ran in utter fear. You know, this is not so unlike God to do with his people. Many times the mission the Lord calls us to is far beyond our capabilities And so many times we respond like Saul. We try to delay the mission. We try to pretend maybe it will go away. Many times we we do as the Israelites. 
We hide behind a, a busy schedule or, or shame or behind our lack of giftedness. And we flee to places of comfort and security. We come up with marvelous excuses like, that's just not my giftedness, or I'm not that good at it, or maybe in a few years. But in reality, these excuses, just like the Israelites, are a cover for fear. Fear of men, fear of failure, fear of being inconvenienced. The Lord calls each of us to a specific mission, a mission that is beyond our capabilities. Pastor Randy Pope puts it this way. He's inspired many people with this one line. He says, attempt something so big for God that unless he is in it, it is doomed to failure. He is not calling us to reckless missions, but he is calling us to audacious missions. What seemingly impossible mission has God called you to? What has he confirmed through his saints and through his providence? Are you delaying fulfilling that mission? Are you sitting on the sideline simply eating popcorn and enjoying the show? Or maybe what mission have you been following God in? but you are tired and you are weary and you are discouraged and you feel like quitting. You know, the feeling of, these, of this distress, of this, this weariness is natural for following God's mission. You see, Satan does not want us to follow God's mission. Satan does not want us to succeed in God's mission. He will resist us. And so it causes us to question, to wander to be tired, to think to ourselves, it would just be so much easier if I gave up and went home and lived life for myself. You see, the existence of resistance is often an indication that you are doing exactly what God wants you to be doing. On Friday night, a bunch of us went curling. It was a blast. It was so much fun. And if you've never seen curling, uh, curling basically is they take a big stone and they slide it down the ice and you try to get it to land on this, this bullseye, this target. And if the, if the rock is headed to the right place, what the other team will do is the other team will take their brooms and they'll start sweeping real fast to try to make that rock miss the target. And so if you throw the stone and you're down at one end and you see the other team start rubbing the ice, start sweeping, it's a good indication. It means that your stone is headed for the right target. One indication that you are fulfilling God's mission in your life is that the opposition, the opposition is busy trying to make you miss your target. Crawford Loretz put it this way. He said, you know you are flying over the right target if you're getting shot at. When you're fulfilling God's mission for your life, the enemy is going to shoot at you. The enemy is going to attack. The enemy is going to try to wear you down and discourage you to the point of quitting. This past week, I was sitting around lunch with a couple of friends, and they asked a pastor friend of mine if he ever felt like quitting. I kind of laughed and said, I feel like quitting every week. It's called Saturday. You see, Saturdays torment me. Or better yet, Satan torments me on Saturdays. I can almost feel his breath on the back of my neck as I'm preparing the sermon, getting it finalized together to give to you. And it's, it makes complete sense. I mean, the last thing God, or excuse me, the last thing Satan wants is for God's word to be proclaimed to God's people and for them to be sent out into mission. 
And so Satan activity, Satan's activity is a good sign that you are fulfilling God's mission for your life. This may be an overstatement, but if you don't feel like quitting your mission from God on a regular basis, you may not be fulfilling God's mission. You see, enemy opposition is seeking to wear us down, to make us quit, to stop fulfilling our mission, and to recede into a self-indulgent life, fulfilling our own pleasures. Anyone who seeks to fulfill God's mission is going to meet resistance from the enemy, and that's why we must live our mission courageously. We must also live our mission submissively. Keep your finger in chapter 13 and just flip to chapter 10 real quick. Chapter 10, verse 7 and 8. This is after the prophet Samuel anoints Saul. Says this, now when these signs meet you, Samuel gave him some signs to, to validate the calling on Saul's life to be king and his mission to go and defeat the Philistines. So he says, when these signs are fulfilled, when these things happen, do what your hand finds you to do, referring to his mission to defeat the Philistines. For God is with you. And then here's the part that we really need to focus on. He says, then go down before me to Gilgal. That's where Saul had assembled the troops. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you should wait until I come to you and show you what you should do. And so Samuel gives Saul the first steps to going and defeating the Philistines. He tells him to go to Gilgal and then to wait for seven days. And he's supposed to wait for Samuel to come because when Samuel comes, not only will he make burnt offerings and peace offerings, but Samuel, will, who is the spokesman for God, will give uh, instructions to Saul on how to defeat the Philistines. And so he's supposed to go to Gilgal, assemble the troops, and then wait for Samuel. Did I mix up those names? Saul, Samuel. Saul's supposed to wait there. Samuel's coming down. Verse 8. He, Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Samuel went out to meet him and greet him. Saul was not only failing to be courageous in the mission that God has called him to, but Saul was failing to submit to God's word in his mission. Saul refused to submit to God's timing. He said, enough is enough. I cannot wait any longer. I have to take matters into my own hand. It's the 11th hour. The people are starting to scatter. The Philistines are looming over. I must offer these sacrifices. And so he refused to wait upon the Lord, to wait upon God, to wait upon God's prophet to come and offer sacrifices and give instructions from the Lord. But he also refused to submit to God's restrictions. You see, God had created an, a, a priesthood out of the line of Aaron. And it was those who were supposed to be priests over Israel and were to offer sacrifices to God. And what Saul does here is that he takes a, a priestly duty and he absorbs it for himself. And he, he brings it upon himself and he does something that is strictly opposed by God's word. To, to give an analogy, it would be like if President Obama decided to start handing out communion at the White House, there would be quite a commotion, right? Because this is not what he's called to. He's called to be a political figure, a political leader. He's not called 
to be a pastor. And so he oversteps his bounds, trying to get God's work done in his own timing. You see, what's so interesting here is that the separation of church and state is not man's idea. It's God's idea. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so if a person both holds office of prophet and priest and king, unless they are perfect, unless they are sinless, devastating things are going to happen. Verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Can you hear Saul backpedaling there? It seems pretty apparent that although Saul doesn't confess that he did something wrong, that he knows he did something wrong because he starts justifying his action. He starts blaming other people for what he did. Saul blames it on the people saying they started to scatter. He blames it on Samuel saying, you didn't come soon enough. He blames it on the situation saying, the Philistines are so big, so scary that I had to take next steps. You see, Saul blames everybody but himself. And this is often what happens when people step out of the mission that God has called them to, they become victims of their own circumstance. They take on this victim mentality. I'm guilty of this. I say things like, it's the kid's fault that I'm angry. It's the church's fault that I'm bitter. It's my wife's fault that I'm a grouch. You know, we so easily blame others and slip into passive victimization instead of responding to our mission to wait upon the Lord and to go and bring forth his redemption of all things. I love how Saul responds here at the end. Saul tries to sanitize his sin. I can relate to that. He says, I was seeking the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself. I didn't want to do it. I really didn't, but I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. You know, I don't think Saul wanted a bad thing. Saul wanted the favor of the Lord in battle. That is a good thing. But Saul wanted to attain a, gainly, a godly goal in ungodly ways. He wanted to attain a godly ends of God's favor, but did it by ungodly means in disobeying God's crystal clear commands. You know, this is always a temptation for God's people to seek a godly end by ungodly means. I've shared this before, but I think it's something that we need to constantly keep in front of us. One of our goals at Jacob's Well is to build a church building. We have purchased some land. We're going to be starting a fundraising campaign to do that. Uh, people will come up to me and they'll say, hey, when are we going to have the new building? And I will say, as soon as you donate $3 million. And then we have an awkward laugh and we change the conversation, right? You know, I think we have a very godly goal in pursuing this building. Our goal is to be a resource church for planting other churches that proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our goal is to facilitate ministries, to minister to our congregation, but also reach out to the community. Our goal is to have a place where people can come for counseling, where we can serve the community. All of these are good goals and godly goals and godly ends, but we can seek that in very ungodly ways. 
We have to be careful in how we pursue the capital campaign, that we don't pursue it with guilt-driven manipulation or with dishonesty or with holding back information to, to help people open up their pocketbooks. That's not how God calls us to do it. God calls us to seek out godly ends with godly means. And that might mean we might have to wait on the Lord longer. It might mean the building takes longer to fundraise for. We must not just pursue the ends of our godly mission. We must pursue it with godly means and submission to his word. And so what about your mission? Do you seek godly ends by ungodly means? Maybe you seek to defend theological purity, but you do it by demeaning your brother or sister in Christ. Maybe you seek to protect the unborn, but you do it by hating those who perform the atrocity. Maybe you seek to sing praise to Jesus, but you do it by stealing music. God wants us to fulfill God's mission in submission to God's timing and in submission to God's word. This is further confirmed by Samuel's response. Verse 13, he says this, And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. I love how blunt Samuel is. You have done foolishly. And you notice his definition of foolishness? His definition of foolishness is you have not done what the Lord has commanded. You have disobeyed the Lord. That is foolishness. And as a result of Saul's foolishness, his unsubmissiveness to God's command, there are devastating consequences. His his kingship will end with him. It will not be passed on to his children. It will not go on forever. This is what the prophet Samuel warned about in his farewell address last chapter. If you remember when Reverend Steinbarger was Reading this in 1 Samuel 12, verse 14 and 15. You can look there if you want. It says this, Samuel's farewell address to Israel. He says this, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. And then the but. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, But rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. By not wanting, by not waiting for Samuel to come and offer sacrifices, Saul disobeys the voice of the Lord, the clear communication of God. And as a consequence, Saul's lineage will not rule the kingship. When I moved up to Green Bay and started serving at New Hope Church, I was introduced to many new songs. One of the songs I was introduced to, which might be familiar to you, is a song called Trust and Obey. And you probably know how it goes. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus 
but to trust and obey. And I remember feeling very uncomfortable with that song because the good news of the gospel is that we're not saved by our good works. We're saved by faith in Christ through grace, not through good works. But you see, this song is not talking talking to us about how we might be saved, but it's talking about how the saved are called into mission. It ends by saying, what he says, what Christ says, we will do. Where he sends, we will go. Mission. Never fear, only trust and obey. If we want to be happy in our relationship with Jesus, we must trust and obey God's mission and submission to his timing and his word. The mission that God calls us to is hard, it's overwhelming, it's bigger than us, so we must live out our mission courageously. There are many ungodly shortcuts available, and so we must live out our mission submissively to God's timing and God's word. And finally, we must live out our mission heartily. The prophet Samuel, speaking to King Saul, says this in verse 14. He says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man, another man, a different man, a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel first lays out the penalty for Saul's disobedience in verse 14, that his line, this line of Saul will not continue in the kingly role. But then the Lord goes on through Samuel to lay out the solution, the remedy of a gracious God for his people. The Lord will seek out and crown another man, another prince over his people. Namely, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. This phrase, a man after his own heart, can be understood in two ways. One way, which is the way I've always understood it, is that this man who God is going to choose is a man who has the same heart as God, the same affections as God, the same passions and desires of God, has love for God. And that is certainly one way to understand this phrase, a man after God's own heart. But another way to understand it is that this man will be the man of God's own choosing. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the first, it is a man who set his heart upon the Lord. The second is a man on whom the Lord has set his heart upon. I think that it is spoken in this way by God, inspired by God, that we might understand that both are true. That the Lord is choosing a man who loves the things that God loves, but that God is also choosing a man whom he loves. As we read further, in 1 Samuel, we find out that this man after God's own heart is a man named David who becomes king. But there's a problem with David. You know, like Saul, King David did not keep the commandments of the Lord. King David also failed to follow the Lord's mission to go out into battle. And when he did not go out into battle, he stayed in. And he committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And then he murdered her husband, Uriah. You see, the Lord has set his heart upon David, but David did not always set his heart upon the Lord. He did not always fulfill God's mission courageously or submissively. And so as great as this man David was, he too was dethroned. But then there came a greater David, 
from the line of David, a prince for whom not only God has fully set his heart upon, but a prince of whom has fully set his heart upon God. A prince who never did anything foolish, who never disobeyed the Lord's command, who never shrunk back from his difficult mission. Acts 5.30 tells us about this prince. It says, The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. But God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. It was for Saul's disobedience that God raised up David to replace him to be prince. It was for our disobedience that God raised up Christ upon the cross as the prince of salvation for the forgiveness of sins. You see, Christ's mission was not to defeat the Philistines. Christ's mission was to defeat Satan, sin, and death on our behalf. Christ came and he fulfilled his mission through great sacrifice and through great suffering. You see, the hand of the Lord that was against Saul because of his sin was against Christ upon the cross for our sin. God's hand of judgment was against Jesus on the cross that God's hand of blessing might be upon you every day of your life. And then on the third day, Christ rose from the dead and then he ascended up into heaven where he rules and reigns as a prince and savior of our souls. You see, in our mission, we are called to set our hearts upon God because God first set his heart upon us. And as we set our hearts upon God, we can fulfill our mission courageously, obediently, and heartily. And so, in summary, we are called to fill our mission courageously against all odds. We are called to fulfill our mission from God submissively, obeying his word and his timing. We are called to fulfill our mission from God heartily, with our hearts set upon him, since he had first set his heart upon us. Now, all of that is well and good, but it does not change the fact that our mission is too big for us, that the enemy is too gigantic. And so the question is, how can we fulfill this impossible mission that God has called us to? And I don't know if you caught it, but in 1 Samuel 10, when, Saul, when Samuel is commissioning Saul for this mission, he says these very important words. He says, now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds you to do, referring to go and defeating the Philistines. And then he says these five crucial words, for God is with you. You see, Saul could fulfill his great and overwhelming mission for one reason and one reason only. It's because God was with him. I have four kids. I think I have a picture up here on the screen. My oldest is Corbin. He's the tallest. And then there's Caleb and there's Carissa and Cooper. And all of them like sports to a certain extent. Corbin uh, plays, had played football for two years now, I believe. He played baseball for a year. He played basketball for three or four years. And uh, he also played soccer for several years as well. Caleb, the second oldest, uh, he's played basketball for a few years and played soccer for a few years. Uh, Carissa played soccer for about 20 minutes. Um, that's the extent of her sports career. She just stood there. The ball came to her, and she just looked at it. Um, and so we put her into dance, and she loves it. She's more of a cheerleader. Um, and then there's Cooper over here. And you can see that sinister grin on his face. And 
And uh, Cooper has, has played one year of kind of um, teach you how to play soccer at the Y. Um, one of the privileges I have every day is to come home to this family. And when I come home, many times Cooper will challenge Corbin and Caleb to a contest, to a sports contest. He'll say, let's go play football. Let's go play basketball. And what's so crazy about this is that Cooper can't catch that well. Don't tell him I said it. But like you throw the ball to him 10 times, he maybe catches it once. And when he shoots a basket, like it doesn't even make it halfway up to the hoop. And yet Cooper, with no fear, without any hesitation, will call them out to athletic competition. He has no hesitation, but he does have one critical stipulation. Dad is on my team. And so we'll go out back and we'll play football and I'll hand him the football and then I'll go and I'll block the kids, kind of hug them. It's kind of illegal, but it works, right? And Cooper will make it into the end zone or we'll be playing basketball and I'll pick him up and I'll lift him all the way up and he'll be right by the rim and he'll kind of roll it over the rim and it will go in. And then when it happens, he makes a stop and celebrate and start chanting the Wisconsin theme song and he dances around dancing like just so happy. And the great commission of Jesus. We are called to be a part of God's glorious plan of redemption for the entire world. And he ends that statement, that great and impossible mission statement by saying this, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the mission that God has called you to is an impossible mission but it's possible for one reason and one reason only. Dad is on our team. Our Heavenly Father goes with us. His Son comes with us through His Holy Spirit. God is with us, defending us, lifting us up, fighting the battle on our behalf. Come off the sidelines into God's mission. Renew your commitment to the mission God has called you to. Fulfill God's mission courageously and obediently and heartily. Because you do not go alone. God goes with you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the mission that you've called us to, that you do not send us out alone, but that you come with us, God, and that you lift us up and that you protect us and that we get to celebrate the victory that you have won through us, and on our behalf, God. Lord, as we turn to your supper, we are reminded of the cost of mission, that mission is painful, and it might even lead to death. We're reminded that Christ, obedient to his mission, went to the cross to die for our sins, to give us new life, life that would be in service to you, in mission to you. God, call us out of our slumber. Call us into this community to serve it, to love it, to care for it with your power and through your grace and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.